0: Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. In this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast, Amy and I will interview Professor Steve Martin from the University of Salford. He is a world expert on varroa, and he'll be with us talking about natural resistance to varroa. In the second segment, I'm going to be the one interviewed. Dr. Cameron Jack from the University of Florida will interview me. Talking about small hive beetles, and of course, we will finish today's episode with stump the chump. So, one of the topics that beekeepers always want to talk about, no matter where I am and no matter you know who I'm talking to, is they want to talk about varroa, and there's just a great emphasis on varroa because we all know varroa is one of the chief biological threats to honeybees around the globe. There's a lot of chemical strategies to try to control varroa. There's breeding to try to control varroa. There's cultural mechanical methods to try to control varroa. And we're actually very privileged today because we are joined by one of the world's experts on varroa, Dr. Stephen Martin, who's a professor in the School of Science, Engineering, and Environment. He's also the chair in social entomology from the University of Salford, Manchester from the UK. Joining us today from the UK. Thank you, Dr. Martin, for joining us on Two Bees in a podcast.
1: Ah, wow, Thanks very much, Jamie, for inviting me. Yeah, It's going to be great.
0: I've been very fortunate because I've spoken you know, in the UK quite a few times and in other places that you've been at the same meeting. I just absolutely love watching your lectures. You're a fantastic lecturer. You have good information to convey. Beekeepers really benefit when they hear you talk, so I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thanks very much for inviting me. Sure, Steve. So one of the way we always start off is we want to get the the listeners to know a little bit about our our interviewees. And so if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into bees, beekeeping, and and how you found yourself where you are today.
1: Um, well, so my name's Stephen Martin. Uh, I started out in Japan. Uh, I was working on uh, beetles in Japan. And then I went and found a a large hornet nest. Insects being cold blooded. I thought, wow, you know, it's so cold outside. And I went and prodded the nest and got stung quite badly actually by the (laughs) hornets. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, this is not what I was told. These things can attack in uh, even in cold weather. So I ran home, got a thermometer. Came back out, threw the thermometer into the colony literally and ran. Came back with a pair of binoculars and saw the temperature go up to like 30 degrees. And I thought, wow, I'm going to get a Nobel Prize. I've discovered something <laughs> really cool. Um Yeah, of course, yeah, that wasn't the case. But that got me into hornet research. And I spent uh, three years in Japan studying uh, hornets. Um, and then I went back for a, a postdoc in Japan also studying hornets. And then when I came back to England, um, my expertise in social insects got me into the National Bee Unit. And this was in the 90, early 1990s. And uh, once that started, my job is was to basically come up with a Varroa model um, and some sort of monitoring tool for the beekeepers because it had just arrived in the UK. It was a huge problem. And so I had to learn all about honeybees and, I mean, basically from that day onwards, I've been studying Varroa for the rest of my life and I'm sort of now just just nearly reaching 60. So I've been in the game for, you know, a long time, 30 plus years, as many as a lot of beekeepers I talk to.
2: (laughs) That's so cool. So this is not about the Asian giant hornet, but did you ever work with that when you were in Japan?
1: Um, yeah, that's Vespa Volutina. Um, uh-huh. We used to work down in, in a little bit in in Taiwan with that, and then occasionally when I've been over in China. I've still got my toe dipped in that. We did work on um, the giant hornet, uh, Mandrinia, a lot, actually. Sure. Um, is it as big
2: as everyone says it is? Uh,
1: yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> it, you know, I mean, you're talking about, oh, should we have a monitoring system? And it's like, you don't need a monitoring system. When that thing flies around, you know, you know, people, look up <laughs> and there. there is nothing. It's probably the largest flying active insect, as opposed to, I mean, there's some huge beetles that fly sure. around that you've never seen. But yeah, once you see one of them, you, you yeah, you won't forget it.
0: <laughs> That's neat. I want to see it, just not in Florida.
1: Me too, me
2: too, me too.
1: We'll <laughs> be there.
2: <laughs> so dr. Martin when I had emailed you I asked you you know what are some topics that we could talk about and you you said that you wanted to talk about natural resistance to Varroa and so my question to you is what does that mean what is natural resistance to Varroa mean I'm sure as soon as we say natural resistance to Varroa our audience you know their ears and eyes are gonna perk up because they want to know everything that you have to tell them
1: right so I'm making the clear distinction here between natural resistance to varroa. And so this is where people, beekeepers, have had zero influence on on the um, evolution of this trait. So uh, we know for a long time now that we've had uh, you know, VS li- VHS lines, uh, Russian bees. People in, in Europe and in America have been very hard to try and select traits which... Mm-hmm. Um, will give these natural resistance. But um, for a long time now, for decades, the Africanized bees uh, have been completely naturally resistant to Varroa. You don't need to treat them at all. Um, The bees in Africa, they became resistant very quickly in a few years. Um, And again, in in most of Africa, nobody treats. Um, It's quite interesting because a lot of these countries can't afford to treat. I mean, you know, it's all subsistence beekeeping. And we studied them oh 20, 30 years ago. We were out in Mexico and recently have been back in Brazil um, looking at these uh, these cases. Um, I, another a good example that everybody would be aware of it is is Tom Seeley's R not B population, but this is actually quite a small population. And then what's been really exciting is that we've had cases now popping up um, in Europe, um, particularly in England, where the beekeeping is very different. Where you know people haven't actually been treating for years and years; they've no need for, and they're not selected them. These have just sort of appeared through various reasons. I can go in and explain.
2: Mm-hmm. Are there um, so? Is this related to Darwinian? wow, I can't even say it, Darwinism beekeeping? <laughs> Is uh, that what it's
1: yeah, it's, well, I've got to be quite careful here because um, the situation in somewhere like America, where there's a huge commercial and, and high densities of colonies, Sure. You know, I think if you just let the bees go, and all become Darwinian beekeepers, you're going to have one massive problem on your hand, Well, probably no more beekeeping um, by and large. But in countries where we have low densities of uh, beekeepers and bees, I mean, you know, our, in Britain, we only have like, you know, most beekeepers just have a few colonies and they don't move them around very much, but most of them still treat, but it is sort of related. So. The thing that's starting to come out with these colonies is that they were just left. Um, And if you go somewhere like Africa, they don't treat for anything. Now, I know it won't be popular among beekeeping, but beekeepers are keepers of bees and they have to do things to keep them bees in a condition that they want them. So they treat them against foul broods, and nasima and, and all the and varroa all the diseases that we have, but in a lot of wild places, so like down in Africa and when the Africanized bees were moving, they never got treated for anything, so they're very resistant against actually most diseases and appear to be able to adapt very quickly to new situations just through selection.
0: So Stephen, let me ask some questions about this because it one of the <laughs> If, if I've got any future PhD students listening, one of the questions that I always ask PhD students in um, their examinations is I would say, let's say that you have two islands that are otherwise identical. You know, they're, let's just say they're, they're you know, they've got the same flora, fauna. They're, you know, 100 kilometers away from each other, but climatically they're identical. And you put... 10,000 colonies on one island and 10,000 colonies on another island, and you put Varroa and you never treat. And let's say Varroa resistance, this natural Varroa resistance developed on both islands. Would you have reason to believe that both populations would have developed the same tools necessary to make them resistant or do you get a whole suite of behaviors of characteristics i mean you mentioned african bees you know i did my phd in south africa you're right they've got varroa but do do bees in southern africa have the same quote natural behaviors or characteristics that make them resistant to varroa that the bees in eastern africa do or the bees in south america do i mean so could you talk a little bit about what these traits are and do we have reason to believe that it's the same traits that confer resistance or a lot of different things can happen to make these bees naturally resistant?
1: Well, oh, that's a really, really good question. So the answer is it appears to be the same traits, which is absolutely maybe staggering uh, in itself. And the reason that that's um, come about And I've got to mention at this point that, you know, I wasn't the person that made the breakthrough on this. Um, The big person that made the breakthrough was um, Odie. So a girl called Odie, she's from Sweden. And she was looking at a population in Norway, so one that hadn't been treated for more than 10 years, and then comparing it with another population that had to be treated. And she was looking at various traits to see if she could find any difference between these two. And she looked at hygienic behavior and, you know, damaged bees, all the things we've always done, and she couldn't find any difference. And then she looked at a behavior which we've all known about, but never really sort of taken it, looked in detail. And that was this trait called well, recapping and it becomes an interesting story because what she found was that the bees that were resistant were actually, had really high levels of recapped cells. So they were opening cells and then closing cells. And they were doing this preferentially of ones that were infested. So they, you know, there was really good evidence that that trait, was actually, they'd learned to target cells. Now, the problem was, is how is this recapping? Because they don't seem to be doing anything. You know, some various ideas. Yeah, yeah, that. how does that help? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got this paper to review from Ode. I went, wow, and to me, a light bulb went on straight away. I knew the whole system. Of course, it never worked out that way. But I was very fortunate. At that time, I was actually travelling, so I went straight to Brazil as part of some work I was already doing. And I said, "Well, if she's right, if only really is right, then there should be loads of it in Brazil." And oh my God, there was. So I thought, "Well, the bees from Brazil—they came from South Africa because they're basically the Africanized bees and the, uh, the Scutellaria bees are the same." So. I'll, I went to South Africa and would you believe it, it was the same trait there. So suddenly I thought, whoa, this is getting really interesting. So then we looked in the UK and it was the same thing we found in the UK. So suddenly we have this, the same trait of this increased recapping, which we found on many continents. And then Odie, she increased her study to, in, to look at the four big uh, naturally resistant uh, populations of bees in Europe. That's the um, original colonies up in Norway. It is the actual colonies in Sweden where they did your experiment, Jamie. Well, they put many, many years ago Ingemar Fries put on a huge number of colonies from all the different uh, races they could find in Europe onto an island at Gotland, just left them and uh, basically they almost they survived a few years then they almost died out it was called the 007 the bond the liverlet die experiment um, and they got down to sort of half a dozen colonies and they thought "Oh, that it and then they became real swarmers and uh, they they're still going slowly but then uh, Odie found that they have high recapping, the ones down, the two populations in France have it. So this is the first trait that, that I know of where it brings all these colonies together. And, and this is, for me, brilliant in beekeeping terms because we all know beekeepers are, I don't you call them, racial But they love their bees. They love their black bees or their yellow bees or the brown bees. And so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what bees they are. They're all apis mellifera honeybees. And any bee can do this, evolve this trait. They're already in some ways pre-adapted.
2: That's really interesting. And and Jamie, it's kind of funny because I think Dr. Martin just gave all of your future PhD students the answer to your question. So Well, I
0: think I think they're still gonna have the greatest <laughs> question. How in the world could this help against Varroa? Because I've seen this. Yeah. You know it, they they uncap it, but how does this help? How does this help them survive Varroa? Sure. Okay. So
1: this is what we've been tackling with uh, just rec well, just recently. And the what what we believe, and this is still up for debate, that it's not actually, the recapping has very little to do with Varroa. So we've done some work, I don't think it's just, it's still under review, but um, in the UK, and we found that the uh, ability to mites to, to reproduce are exactly the same in Uh, recap cells as non-recap cells. So we believe that the recapping trait is a proxy. So it's just a good trait to look at. And the reason why they're resistant is because these bees are really good at detecting them and actually removing them. So this is classic hygienic Mm behaviour that, you know, Marla Spivak's championed for so many years. And it's exactly the same mechanism except the bees need to learn how to detect the varroa mites or an infested cell because unlike most diseases, they're, they're living and there are people uh, sort of looking at that side of things. So we've worked out that there is a, there's a strong relationship between recapping and uh, re- removal is the, is the situation. It's removal that actually is the key to all this. The bees detect them, and then other bees then will remove them. They don't actually remove them, they cannibalize them. They don't kill the mite, the mite actually escapes, but it can't reproduce, it's it's reproductively dead. And then this lowers the mite population, it lowers the virus population, and it leads to a sort of persistently low amount of infestation in a, within a population, and, and this is at a population um, level effect.
2: So that's that's really interesting. I'm I'm thinking about you know just the behaviors and the observations that the researchers have, and my next question is what kind of research, you know, what does the research look like to determine this? It seems like there are a lot of moving factors, which there always is in research. Um, but what specifically, you know, how does the research look? And also, you know, besides observation, I guess, have you all looked at other things like the, genet- the genetics of um, these bees as well?
1: So um, the, the observations, like any observations, are repetitive and pretty boring. We've focused on recapping to start with because it's by far the easiest one to determine. Even that is still very time consuming because unfortunately at the moment we've got no way of determining whether the cells recapped from looking from the sort of from the outside, just looking at a brood frame. Um you, you can sometimes see it with wax moth where you get a line of, of recap cells because the colour slightly different, but it's unreliable for this level. So you need to open up the cells from the inside, and that is a slow, time-consuming. I am sure somebody, and it's a plea to people out there, please design a, a mechanism, possibly <laughs> some sort of a torch, a UV light we can shine onto the uh, frames um and we can actually see which ones are recapped and which are not Uh, people have used waxing strips gaffer tape uh knives all sorts of methods but the only one that seems to be good for research is is recapping so but the actual the really good data the crucial data is coming from uh, mite uh, inserts and this is where you very laboriously take live varroa mite, insert them into cells of the right age, mark them on a sheet, go back, you know, uh, sort of 10 days later, lift up the sheet and then see how many have been removed and how many have been recapped. And that is, Mm -hmm. this is what they were doing originally with the SMR lines. And uh, you notice as soon as you scale this up, they sort of give up and then they start using proxies in differences in infestation rates because it gets quite difficult to do, you know, at large scale. So this is where, you know, you benefit from a big team of people. And the other work that we haven't, uh, so that, they're the two main things uh, to do. The genetics, we are currently working on not the genetics per se, but we're determining whether this, Is a learned behaviour, because we know things like bumblebees and social insects can learn things from fellow workers, Mm -hmm. the colony never really dies, can always just be passed on an alert behaviour, or is it a genetic behaviour which is carried by the queens? Because if it is, then that would be really beneficial uh, for, for beekeepers, because you could just be able to move uh you know sell queens with the traits in them which has always been the sort of golden bullet for a lot of people but that's what we're doing and yeah you know i'll leave it up to bigger experts to to work out the genetics and but because it's a behavior it's very rare that they pin this down genetically it's very difficult so we're going for the low-hanging fruit at the moment.
0: So, Stephen, this is all very fascinating. I don't, you may not know this, but we've interviewed uh, Jeff Harris last week. We haven't even released the episode yet. He talked a lot about, you know, the VSH trait and the bees' ability to determine this. And now you're talking about these uncapping traits. I'm familiar with a lot of these um, populations of bees that you've mentioned about having resistance. I remember Ingemar's study, the, the Gotland bees. All of this is fascinating. Beekeepers, I think, would find it fascinating. So at the end of the day, you know, this research is great. This is all encouraging. It's exciting. But the, at the end of the day, how do you see beekeepers specifically you know, benefiting from this, these findings? I mean, I know it's going to take years more of research, but where do you see this heading on behalf of beekeepers?
1: Right. So this is, this is the big question. And I've changed the focus of my research up from science more to beekeeping type thing. I spent, so I was lucky to spend a summer with Marla Spivak, Um, Last year, and we discussed this a lot. Um, And the situation is is in the UK, this is possibility. This is a strong possibility. We have an increasing number of people now that just don't treat. And these are some big areas. We've got one area with uh, about 100 beekeepers. Now, okay, they're only keeping sort of 500 plus colonies. But it's an area of a, of a small, count. well, it's it's almost an entire county in Britain. And they, nobody treats in that area. I think there's only one person be, uh, treats. The problem in the UK is it's government policy that you have to treat. So there are a lot of people who are um, just don't mention it. And every time I go around to give a talk, I get people coming up afterwards saying, oh, I didn't like to say, but. I haven't treated for 10 years and uh, there is a, actually there's, there's quite a large number in the UK and in fact there's even a group called the the naturalist beekeepers who refuse to treat um, I always thought well they'll just die out for will kill them but they're thriving so it actually hasn't and we believe that this is what's what's actually going on. And we're starting to get data from these beekeepers to support it. So what I've done for the UK beekeepers, I'll take, I'll separate the UK and America because they're two very different systems. So for the UK beekeepers during lockdown, COVID lockdown, we've done an instructional leaflet. Um, it's a, in the British beekeepers sort of specialist shoe. You can buy it for four pounds. Um, and basically what that does it lays out all the science some of it that's not actually been published yet and then a sort of methodology so how to test your own bees to see where they are on the spectrum just using the recapping because it's the simplest thing and i know in germany they're doing a very similar thing where they're having workshops what have you and they've got a sort of similar system now america now that's a very different cattle of fish I was amazed that when I was up at uh, working with Marla, we were doing these experiments. We were actually doing mite introduction experiments as part of a much bigger experiment that Marla was involved in. And I introduced the recapping part just because I was interested. And Marla's hygienic bees um, were actually really good. They were amazing. They were just like bees I'd seen in Brazil or South Africa or in England. And I said, why are you treating these? And she says, well, you know, they're research bees and we need to keep them going. But then at the same time, and this is crucial, she had somebody, for, I think it's, it's a guy called William Shepard. He's a, a beekeeper that doesn't treat for a long, long time in, a, in America. You have many beekeepers that don't treat in America as well. And uh, Marla got some colonies and I had a look at them. And sure, they were, you know, they were heaving with mites and they were recapping like crazy. And we've been able to work out and solve potentially one of the big issues is that because they're actually removing infested brood, if you get a big influx of mites and the infestation level goes above sort of 40 percent, and this can just happen over a short period of time, say a colony collapses nearby, then basically they, t- they remove so many brood, so much brood from your colony, that the colony actually just collapses. I mean, it just spirals down because it, it killed too many bees. It's a bit like having a massive chalk brood invasion. And this explains why often you can't take these colonies out of their population. So this is the big problem faced by uh, America, is that you have such huge densities of bees and you all need, to, you know, you'd have to have whole areas on the same sheet, basically, for this to work. And me and Hall have spent a long time and we don't, we didn't really come up with a, a solution to this at all, because the scale is just too massive. And I think that does, you know, it ties in slightly to the, you know, to the, the VHS lines, which I'd, be, I'd love to see whether they've got the same traits as this. There are records of it, but we need to see sort of of it now. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And it may be that this is one of the problems, is that they're just getting overwhelmed by the environment. And that takes us right back to the very first point to say, well, if we just let Darwinian beekeeping go, you just have too many mites, what you call mite bombs. And basically, even if you had highly adapted bees, they would still probably die because you just have too many mites in the environment. So it's going to take some time. Um, if we can show that this is genetic and you can use queens to transfer the traits, and we do have a project in Hawaii because we've, it's already appeared in Hawaii, and we've got one of the uh, commercial beekeepers online there then you know, that is a possible solution by flooding the market with you know, these bees, with this, this trait. But that's a long way down the pipeline because we need to know the influence of the, the drones and the queens. But in the UK, you know, I think in 10 years' time, the vast majority of people will not treat for varroa. We know there's a halo effect. We've seen it. So where people are not treating people nearby, you know, they they forget or there's, you know, colonies they don't do. And all this selection happened in, in the feral colonies, the wild colonies, which is where all the selection is. And most of these beekeepers are just collecting, and originally just collecting them from the wild. And then when they didn't die, they then split and built up their stocks from that.
0: I think that this is all very promising. It's amazing to me. I think in the States here, we've had Varroa now for 35, almost 40 years. And so it's been a constant battle. I know Europe's had it longer. And then you, you mentioned researching in Hawaii. They've only had it uh, less than a decade, I believe, in Hawaii. So the research that you and others are doing is so important for beekeepers. I think one of the struggles with stocks traditionally in the, in the U.S. is just ad- adoption. and People just don't use them. We've talked about this on previous podcasts. I just... And and then furthermore, they can lose traits so quickly because, you know, beekeepers allow their queens to open mate. If they lose that stock that they paid for, they'll allow open mating and it's easy to lose the traits. So it's so tricky. So it's great that there's research like yours, Stephen, that you guys are doing that continues to show – Some benefits to this. I think it's interesting that you note that in the UK, you guys may not be treating much at all in 10 years. And that's, That's you know, having seen this firsthand (laughs) myself in Brazil and in South Africa, it's just, it's an amazing horizon that's, that's coming our way. And I hope that there's a day that we don't have to talk about Varroa because it's controlled. So thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and sharing with us about the research that you've been up to. This is just utterly fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, thanks Jamie. I've been in this game a long time and beekeepers will know I've been generally pretty pessimistic and realistic about it. But to me, this is the first time we've ever had a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's amazing how how much support I'm getting from the beekeepers wherever we work, who are fascinated and more and more keep coming out of the woodwork. And We know in the States there are a lot of people who haven't been treating for many years, but the majority of them just keep their heads down because they don't want to be vilified at talks and things, and uh, they just get on with their beekeeping.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing what a what a good summary. So everybody, that's been Dr. Stephen Martin, who's a professor in the School of Science, Engineering, and Environment, the Chair in Social Entomology at the University of Salford, Manchester, UK. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast.
1: No, thanks very much, Jamie.
0: Have questions or comments? Don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UF Honeybee Lab. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us on this segment of Two Bees and a Podcast. We are going to do something very different this segment. I'm actually going to be the one who is getting interviewed. And Dr. Cameron Jack, a lecturer here in the entomology and nematology department at the University of Florida, will be the one doing the interview. And the reason we're doing it this way is because this segment is a, all about small high beetles. And I happen to have done quite a bit of work on small high beetles in my past So I'm going to be the one answering questions on it. And Cameron, thank you for joining us to be the one who's going to ask me those questions. How you been, Cameron? I'm doing all right. I'm glad to be back. This is kind of
3: funny. I mean, you know, that just for all those listeners out there, just so you know, every time that, you know, Dr. Ellis gets an email about something that somebody else has studied before he considers us to be the resident expert so for instance i'm the nozima resident nozima expert i'm the resident varroa expert and then he'll throw that kind of to other people to you know to get everybody's opinion but then i mean in this lab he is still the resident small hive beetle expert so if i get a question about small hive beetles i'm sending it to him now
0: well, Cameron, it's nice that I can be an expert on something because <laughs> all of you guys know so much more than I know about everything else. So I always have to come to you guys to ask questions.
3: Well, good. Well, this is this should be a, a really useful, uh, I hope, segment for for beekeepers because, of course, especially I mean here in the southeast. I I so me personally, I had never. Um, seeing a small hive beetle until I moved to Florida to do my research here at the university. And so uh, it's something that I wasn't particularly familiar with and something that I'm still learning about. So I've got, I've got some questions to ask you and hopefully they'll be useful for, for everybody. But I think it'd probably just make the most sense, to kind of just start from the beginning. And just if you wouldn't mind, Jamie, telling us a little bit about, you know, what are small hive beetles and, you know, where did they come from?
0: Yeah, so I'll give a little bit of background on that and kind of my introduction to them as well. So I I did my undergraduate at the University of Georgia from 1996 to 2000. I guess I'm aging myself here. And right in that window is when small hive beetles were first found in the southeastern U.S. And you know, that is when things exploded about them. And the funny thing is, is I also had only just sort of started seeing them once I was finishing up my time at the University of Georgia. And I was fortunate. Well, it it was a difficult time for beekeepers because it's a new pest, but it was fortunate uh, for me because right about that time, the USDA lab in Tucson, uh, sorry, in um, Westlaco, Texas, had just developed a partnership with Rhodes University which is in South Africa, to do some work on small high beetles. And so Patty Ellison, a scientist for the USDA at the time in Westaco, had worked with Randall Hepburn, who became my supervisor, and they were looking for a student to do some work on small high beetles. And so fortunately, I was the student selected to do that at the time. And, and, and as a result, I was able to get in to work with small high beetles on the ground floor. We knew so little about small high beetles. All we knew is that they were found in the U.S. and colonies were dying as a result of hosting these things. And we knew that they were native to sub-Saharan Africa. And that's pretty much um, where we started. And so when I went to South Africa to do my PhD research, I just started learning so much. And the first thing I learned is that we actually knew something about them. There were two scientists who preceded me. One, Lundy was his last name, who who had done some work, A.E. Lundy, who had done some work in uh, South Africa on small high beetles in the 1940s. And he wrote this little pamphlet on small high beetles. And if you go back and read that pamphlet, it is still chock full of the relevant most basic information on what small high beetles are, how they reproduce, what they do to colonies, etc. And then in the 1970s, literally 30 years after Lundy did his work, there was an individual who did some work, Smokey was his last name, and he did work in then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and he did some master's work on small high beetles, and that master's thesis talks a lot about what small-high beetles are, how they reproduce in colonies, etc. And Lundy and Schmokey's respective papers really laid the foundation for everything we know about small-high beetles. In fact, almost everything I'm going to tell you in this series of uh, questions that you'll end up asking me, no doubt, really have been answered by Lundy and Schmokey. And and the rest of us are just building our projects on that. So so with that background, what are small-high beetles? Well, they are one member of a family of beetles the family's called nitadulidae and nitadulid beetles have uh, a lot of things in common they have these life history traits that are that are that they are common for example a lot of nitadulids uh, like to um, feed and reproduce on rotten fruits or they might uh, be pollen eaters. Well, we know small high beetles, as nidodoulids, are these beetles that inhabit honeybee colonies. And we know that these small high beetles feed on uh, nectar, they feed on brood, they feed on pollen. Um, we we know that small high beetles specifically are native to sub-Saharan Africa. So this is a beetle that has been present in the lower half of Africa for, for many, many, many years, probably thousands upon thousands of years where they've been colony pests. They literally live inside the colonies of honeybees that are native to sub-Saharan Africa. And if you look back at records of their distribution, they probably have a natural distribution in most every country that exists below the Saharan desert. So they're literally distributed all over the place in Africa. But the reason we didn't hear so much about them outside of Africa is because bees in Africa tend to tolerate these beetles quite well. And they only became a known thing once they escaped their endemic range and started um, you know, being a problem in colonies of European derived Honeybees, and, and that's kind of what got the ball rolling. So that's what they are. They're just a colony pest and they originated again in sub-Saharan Africa. And and now that they're outside of that, all of us are becoming aware of these beetles, what they do and how they can damage colonies.
3: Well, thanks you know, for giving that overview. It's also actually really interesting to kind of hear in your own words, kind of how you got started in this. I Maybe people don't know this. Maybe you don't know this, Jamie, but I'm actually not just, uh, you know, an occasional contributor to the podcast. I'm actually a fan and I've been listening to (laughs) almost all the episodes. I think I've got maybe just some of the early ones that I might've missed, but, but I've listened to almost all of them. And I heard you mention, you know, very frequently kind of that you did your PhD in South Africa um, and you've done some work with small high beetles, but uh, this is the first time I think that I've really heard you go into detail maybe about how you actually got started in that. But uh, you know, knowing from what you said that, that they seem to to be native to this sub sub-Sah- sub Saharan Africa, you know, and we know that they've arrived in in the United States kind of in the you know the mid nineteen nineties. What what does their current distribution look like now worldwide?
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So, so again, in that 1996 to 2000 range, when I was at University of Georgia, I was an undergraduate research um, assistant in the laboratory of Dr. Keith Delaplaine, and And I just started hearing about small high beetles and knew that they were an issue and a budding issue. And so, you know, we all were doing background work on, on looking at where these things were from. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the only two, um, Papers. While wow, they were amazing, but the only two that we had access to were from the scientists in South Africa and the one in Zimbabwe. And, you know, that let us know instantly that they were a sub-Saharan African pest. And we we looked at these two papers and, and they mentioned this. And what's interesting is if if I get my history correct, the first beetles that were ID'd were actually beetles that were found in colonies you know, in the southeastern U.S. And once they were ID'd, there were other states that were saying, hey, you know, we've got some beetles like this in our collections as well. And they would go back and identify them, and it turned out to be small hive beetles. And it kind of pushed back the date that they arrived in the U.S. And so we believe that they kind of came to the U.S., just like what you mentioned in the mid-1990s. It's possible they were here earlier, but we're just not sure. And from there, in 2000, if if I remember correctly, they were found in australia and then from that point other bee scientists or beekeepers in other countries around the world were starting to notice that these beetles were present as well they were found for example in europe we we now know that italy has um, an established population but before they were found in italy there had been spot finds in portugal for example of some eggs or larvae i forget that were found on queen cages that had been brought in for elsewhere So we know now that they have established populations in Europe, principally in Italy. We know they're in South America and Brazil and other countries. So now we've got North America, South America, Australia, we've got Europe, and within the past five or eight years they've been found in Asia as well. So they're native to Africa, they're in North America, South America, Europe, Australia, and Asia. Essentially they're in every continent now, except Antarctica. And what you'll notice if you look at the literature associated with small high beetles, they are often found first in or around port cities. For example, here in Florida, some of the, the, the beekeepers who've been here for a very long time following the small high beetle issues would say things like, you know, we, we were seeing them in the Tampa area or the Miami area or the Jacksonville area first. And of course, all of these are port cities. And we heard similar stories from Australia. They'd be in Sydney or Brisbane important port cities. And we don't believe that that's a coincidence. We believe that it's possible that the beetles were traveling with swarms on these ships or with colonies that were moving around in these ways, or even, you know, inadvertently with people who who were coming in and out of these port cities. So even though I've mentioned every continent, they still have spotty distributions on a lot of these continents. You know, I kind of said Europe when in reality their distribution's confined to some 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 areas in southern Italy as an example. Or I've said South America, whereas that, you know, they've only been found in a few countries. But frankly, Cameron at this point, given their their presence of established populations on all six of those continents, it's just really a matter of time, you know, over the next decade or two or three decades where they spread to exist anywhere that honeybee colonies exist in these areas there there are a couple of caveats there we know that these beetles really like to inhabit colonies that are in warmer climates for example they've been here for two decades in the U.S. but they're generally a larger problem for bee colonies in the southern half of the U.S. rather than the northern half and that's largely because likely that they just don't uh, overwinter well so even though I believe that they're going to spread in a lot of these continents to a lot more countries that don't already have them, you know, climate seems to be uh somewhat of those things that limits the distribution of these beetles.
3: Well that's interesting to to kind of know about and and thinking about um, one of the things that you said was that it's if we're expecting that these beetles are showing up in port cities and the way that it said assuming that we're not shipping bees around the like, entire um, colonies, entire hives, then, you know, how are these, these beetles staying on these maybe swarms or, or how are they getting here? It's just, it's really interesting to think about and, and maybe to kind of help us understand a little bit better about how these beetles are actually spreading and moving and reproducing. Maybe you could give us a little bit of an, an overview of the small hive beetle life cycle.
0: Sure. So let's let's think about this then, kind of holistically. I, I'm going to give a brief overview of the small hybrial life cycle, and then maybe talk about how it could lend itself to the transportation of this pest elsewhere. So the adult beetles the male and females are really good flyers we're not exactly sure you know how far they fly but we you know that's one of the outstanding research needs but we know that they're reasonably good flyers and they will fly into these colonies honeybee colonies usually we believe kind of dusk or during during the evenings or night so these beetles are going in they're going into these colonies and the males and females will mate. We're not exactly sure on the number of times that they mate, how often they mate, et cetera, but we know that they mate. And the females will lay eggs in cracks and crevices about the nest. Now, some of the research I did when I was a PhD student is we would see that these female beetles can lay eggs in brood combs. They can actually bite holes in the cappings or the side walls of, of the cells that contain brood. And then they'll stick in their ovipositor, which is this long appendage that they can protrude from their rear end and stick into these cracks and crevices or holes in brood cells. They'll lay eggs. And then out of these eggs will come young larvae. These are very mobile larvae, unlike a lot of other beetle larvae, small hive beetle larvae are very mobile. They'll eat brood pollen or nectar. We know that they have to have a protein source in order to develop appropriately. So while they will eat honey, And nectar, we believe that they have to grow on a protein source like brood or pollen. So once these larvae finish growing, finish consuming all the food that they need to grow, they will exit the hives, usually in the evenings, and they will exit the hive and burrow into the soil around the nest, and they literally pupate in the soil. Once they tunnel down into the soil, they will excavate these little cavities in which they pupate. After they finish pupating, they will crawl out of the soil as adult beetles and then fly off to find new colonies, either the colony under which they're pupating in the first place or other neighboring colonies. So, you know, we get this life cycle that when, when conditions, temperature and food resources are optimum, it, it can be, you know, three weeks to complete that life cycle. We also have some evidence that if they have, you know, if 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 the conditions aren't optimum, for example, it's cold or the food resources aren't available, it can take you know four to six weeks before they'll complete this life cycle. But nevertheless, you know, all of these things can contribute to their spread. For example, the fact that they fly contributes to their spread. The fact that a lot of beekeepers uh, have migratory operations where they'll move the bees around. Can contribute to their spread because they're moving them around in colonies and and think about it if, if you've had this huge flush of beetles beetle larvae into the soil to pupate and you move your colonies away to go pollinate a crop well now you've got all these beetles that are going to come out of the soil you know three to four weeks later these adult beetles well they're going to have to fly to find the nearest colonies to inhabit so this flight we we know uh, when, when i was doing a student you know i was a student doing um, a research project on beetle distribution when, when I was watching colonies swarm or abscond in response to having beetles in the nest, we were seeing beetles come out of the colonies with swarms. We found beetles in swarms. And when we've hived these swarms, we found beetles in the clusters going in colonies with them. We know that ship shipping traffic will oftentimes have swarms on them. We now know that beetles, adults are able to trick bee adults into feeding them. So it's possible, so it's not been demonstrated, but it's possible that while beetles are in these clusters of bees, they're able to trick bees into feeding them. There's been some speculation that adult beetles might be able to travel on fruit because of research projects that have shown that adult beetles can feed and even reproduce on fruit to, to low degrees. There's been some speculation that um, in and in so- in, in containers that include soil, perhaps they include beetle pupae that are in, in the soil pupating. So all of these things contribute to their movement. We know that there's a lot of widespread shipment of bee products, you know, bee packages, queen bees in cages, wax, honey, things like this. And so one of the suspects for transporting these beetles around have been bees or bee-associated products that have been moving. And all of this is made possible because of the life cycle that beetles have.
3: Well, that's really interesting to hear about. I think you can appreciate this as, as well, but I mean, as both a researcher and um, a beekeeper, you know, I, when I learn about some of these honeybee pests and pathogens, you know, my first thought is like, ah, like so frustrating when they're, they're affecting my bees and, and harming my colonies. But then the other, the scientist part of me is like, this is just so interesting. So cool to learn about how they, how they can be so effective. But kind of coming to the, the beekeeping side of this, thinking about it is, so, so we know a little bit now about their their life cycle, but you know what is the actual harm that they are causing these honeybee colonies?
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things, I'm going to kind of go from the, the least harmful to the most harmful. One of the interesting things that was discovered about small hive beetles is they, during the feeding process, they will defecate, right? That's pretty common for, for the larva and the adult beetles. That's, that's common. When you eat, your poop. That's just one of the things that, that happens in life, right? But what's interesting about uh, beetle feces is we believe that these feces will promote the fermentation of honey or nectar in the nest. So what happens is when these beetles are feeding and they're reproducing, you will start to get this fermented bubbly honey and you get this typical, what we call slime outs. So these beetle larvae are tunneling through the combs. They're eating pollen and brood and honey. And then you start getting these slime trails associated with these larvae. And, and on top of that, when, when a colony is stressed for whatever reason, queenlessness, varroa, uh, we, we, believe, we believe a lot of stressors can promote these mass reproduction events for beetle larvae. So what does all this mean? So you got a colony that's stressed for whatever reason. Well, you get these adult beetles that will move in, they'll start reproducing, the females will lay eggs, and you get this explosive reproduction. I happen to be one of the people who think that when beetles are present in an area that you always have beetle reproduction, right? Otherwise, where do the adult beetles come from? So you've got this kind of cryptic, low-level reproduction of beetles in the typical standard healthy colony. Healthy colonies are combating the beetles, they're keeping them confined to the nest perimeter, you know they're 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 hygienically removing beetle eggs and young beetle larvae, et cetera, and all of this is keeping it beetle populations relatively subdued and suppressed. You get this cryptic reproduction, but nothing explosive. But explosive. But for some reason, every once in a while, either due to colony stress or some other factors that we haven't figured out yet you can get this massive beetle explosion and reproduction. So you get a lot of larvae that come on at one time. And with all of these larvae, you get this massive slime produced, you get extreme amounts of brood being consumed, you get this extreme amount of pollen being consumed, you get this honey sliming out and being tracked everywhere in the colony, and you get these colonies that will collapse. So most of the time, Bee colonies seem able to handle beetle pressures, but for whatever reason, be it the colony stressed or some reason we haven't identified yet, you can get these massive explosive reproduction events that will just cause colonies to collapse very suddenly. And and I remember when I was up in Georgia and I was hearing about this down in Florida, I almost didn't believe that it was the case, you know, because the bees that I was working with in Georgia seemed to be able to handle beetles. But when I came to Florida and started running research projects, I'd get a colony that was completely overwhelmed by beetles for for an unknown reason. It was Queen right; the Varroa were controlled. I couldn't understand why the beetles were a problem, but they were and the colony died. And then the beetles just seemed to march right on down the row of colonies, taking out otherwise seemingly healthy colonies. So it's really amazing how all of this happens, and there's so much that we don't know about it. But I will say the principal reason these issues, these these colonies, ultimately collapse is just the feeding habits of the larvae. They just slime out everything, and it's almost like the morale of the adult bees that are left behind is just beat down. It's almost like they're they're no longer able to do anything about this you know, once it reaches a critical number of beetle larvae that, that that are in the nest causing this damage, it's almost like the bees just give up. So you get these colonies that collapse. In some circumstances, it can be so bad that the bees just, the, the, it can be so bad the bees just completely abandon the nest. We call that absconding behavior. So when colonies are overwhelmed by beetles, they will often abscond. So collectively, you get colony collapse, you get colonies that are underperforming, you get colonies whose who are having to divert resources to addressing beetles and all of these can affect the bottom line for beekeepers.
3: Yeah. As, as I already mentioned I, I mean, before I moved to Florida, I, I didn't, I had never seen a small hive beetle. And so kind of getting here at least within the, probably the first year or so when I first experienced uh, a slimed colony and, and saw kind of that I felt that horror that you're kind of describing when you can see all these adults in there and you're just waiting for it. You're like, well, it looks like the bees are okay. It looks like they're handling it. Okay. And then all of a sudden the next time I in that hive, there's just a big mess and it's just really kind of disheartening. So can you share with us maybe some ideas of, of what beekeepers can actually do? What are some control options for small hive beetles?
0: Well, it's interesting it's interesting to think about small high beetle control management and, and um, the associated what I call paranoia with small high beetles. What you tend to see are when beetles first move into an area, you get all of these slime out, you get collapsing colonies and beekeepers, rightly so, begin to absolutely freak out. And as a result, we got all this negative press associated with small high beetles. And when they first move into an area, it's just people think it's the end of the world. But, you know, two decades in to having small high beetles here in Florida, if you ask Floridian beekeepers about small high beetles, especially the commercial beekeepers, they largely feel that they have beetles under control and that they're a secondary stressor. Now, you contrast that with areas around the world where you're hearing beetles are moving into, for example, Italy. I know Europe is really panicking right now about small high beetles being present in Italy. Whereas it's almost like a lot of American beekeepers have just kind of moved on. You know, there's other things that we're worried about. Well, you saw it with Australian beekeepers, you know, and beetles moved in there. It was a big, you know, freak out. What are we going to do? But now a lot of Australian beekeepers have just kind of moved on. And, and you see that time and time again once bees, uh, beetles move into these areas. So what in the world's happening? Well, let me let me paint a few pictures for you. Number one, beetles haven't ceased To be a problem when they move into an area they remain a problem but what you'll notice is that beekeepers just learn how to kind of live with them and if you ask a beekeeper what happened you know why are they not so worried about beetles they'll say well they you know it's they've just kind of lessened over time when in reality i think it's we have done things as beekeepers to help lessen the problem even if it's kind of subliminally let me give you some examples you know, one of the ways to minimize the impact of beetles is keep strong colonies. You know, manage the diseases and pests that you can manage so that the bee colonies are strong enough to handle the beetle populations that are low initially. Another thing is a lot of beekeepers won't leave dead outs in their colonies, uh, in their apiaries. It was pretty routine. You know, if, if you left a colony, if you f- go to work, your apiary of 30 colonies and there's, you know, 30 colonies there and two of them are dead when you move in. Well, there's no pressing issue to get those two hives taken out because we'll we'll just deal with it when we're back. Well, we know if you leave dead out hives in your apiary that they're just wealth of resources for small hive beetles. The beetles will move in, they'll eat the pollen, they'll eat the nectar, and it'll just serve as a reservoir for, for beetle reproduction that's just going to inundate your apiary later. So beekeepers are very good about dead outs. And for that matter, they're really good about weak colonies. Be- beekeepers who are in areas where beetles are present, they just don't leave weak colonies. If you have a weak colony, you, don't, you have a, a nest where the adult bees aren't able to patrol the whole nest, which means there's a lot of of unaccounted for space in that nest that beetles can go in and reproduce in. So, a lot of beekeepers uh, have developed an incredibly low threshold for a weak colony. So, if a colony is even remotely weak, they will take it out themselves, combine it with a strong colony so that there's no resources available for small hive beetles. That, that kind of lends itself to hygiene in the honey house as well. A lot of our beekeepers would have collected supers and, and just collected supers to extract maybe for weeks before they actually get around to extracting them well you can't do that anymore if you start stockpiling supers in a in an area where you want to extract them later you know a week or two later then you come back a week or two later and beetles are present you're going to have a bunch of slimed out supers so a lot of beekeepers have kind of adopted the policy that they'll take off supers and extract it the same day to minimize the impact of small, high, you know, explosive, small, high beetle reproduction in the honey house. So collectively, a lot of these little subtle management practices, making sure your colonies are queen right, making sure the diseases and pests are controlled, making sure the dead outs are taken out instantly, making sure the weak colonies are combined instantly. A lot of these cultural or mechanical or management based control practices have really kind of lessened the impact of beetles. And there are, of course, a few chemical options that American beekeepers have accessible to them. Guard Star that you can put on the ground around colonies to control the beetles that are pupating in the soil. Uh, There was Checkmite Plus that you could use in colonies to control adult beetles. But what, what has really happened in colonies was this explosion of trapping for small hot beetles. You know, Better Beetle Blaster, AJ's Beetle Eater, the West Beetle Trap, and just so many more traps that beekeepers are starting to put in colonies to trap and capture adult beetles. And they'll just use some very basic attractants like apple cider vinegar or or, um, vegetable oil, or they might put in mineral oil as, as a killing agent. But this idea that they're constantly trapping and taxing adult beetle populations. I know some people have experimented with using nematodes, you know, nematodes are these nearly but not quite microscopic worm-like creatures that live in soil, many of which uh, have an affinity for attacking beetle larvae of all kinds. So people have experimented with using nematodes to control small, hive beetles. But, you know, I've said a lot, but basically it boils down to a few basic things. Good hygiene, right? You know, keeping your honey houses clean, taking out the dead outs, making sure your weak colonies are combined, keeping the other diseases and pests that you can control, controlled so your colonies can be strong and healthy make sure your colonies are queen right etc and then using lots of traps in advance of beetle problems i know here in florida when we do our research projects from say july to october we often put beetle traps in colonies because we anticipate having beetle problems so all of those things collectively are things that beekeepers do to help minimize the impact of, of beetles in their apiaries
3: well, it's, you know, it just kind of reinforces this idea that, you know, as a beekeeper nowadays, you know, beekeeping now is probably very different than it was 30 years ago in, in the amount of time that you just need to kind of actually spend with your colonies and and making sure that they are healthy and, and okay. Um, and so beekeeping is no longer probably just a, a really easy hobby that you might do, you know, and when you occasionally have spare time, I mean, you really actually sounds like you need to be active in, in your management. So one more question that I, that I'd like to ask is what, what do you think the future research, what, what research is needed for small hive beetle?
0: So there's a lot that I could say here, but I'll try to keep it basic camera. What obviously I, I mean, obviously we need a lot more and even better control options available to us. And so that's going to be research-based. It is obviously a very bad thing that small high beetles are spreading around the world. On the other hand, there is some good that's going to come out of it, right? There's always a silver lining. And that good might not be immediately, obviously, a lot of people, but I'm encouraged by it. When small high beetles were in North America, there were North American bee scientists who studied them. And principally, since small high beetles were mainly a problem in the southeastern U.S., that's where they were studied. All right. Well, now that they are spreading to South America and Europe and Asia and elsewhere, there's a lot of other labs. There has been an explosion in labs looking at small high beetles and studying small high beetles. There's been a huge explosion in beetle research. There's Australian scientists and South American scientists, European scientists, African scientists, North American scientists, et cetera, Asian scientists looking at this beetle. And as a result, I think there's going to be an explosion in beetle control research. I think that research is needed and I think it's happening. I think it's going to happen even more and more. And I believe that we will have really good control options for small high beetles in what I hope will be in the near future. I also believe we need to a lot more research on beetle biology you know these small hive beetles i think you mentioned it in one of your comments earlier these small hive beetles aren't just an interesting pest problem let me, let me give you an example we've talked a lot about beetle management you know life cycle etc there's a lot that i didn't tell you about just based on time you know when when small high beetles show up in colonies the bees actually put them in prison and they will keep them in prison they station guard bees at these prisons I did a lot of work on this when I was a PhD student in South Africa. And when we my my colleagues and I even discovered that these small high beetles that are in prison can coerce their guard bees into feeding them. So just biologically, small hive beetles are fascinating to learn about this prison system, this feeding mechanism, how beetles are able to beat the bee defenses and incorporate themselves into the life cycle of a honeybee colony so just from a biological perspective there are students who are interested in exploring just really cool stories there's a lot of that research so just the biology of the beetle the behavior of the beetle the control of the beetle and also we need to know more about how the beetle is spread and and what its flight and movement capacity is and i know that some colleagues of mine are looking at these very topics but we just need to know a lot more so one, again, one of the bad things about beetle spreading is a lot more beekeepers are encountering this this pest and are having to address it in their apiaries. But if there is a silver lining, it's that it's opening the world to being able to study this particular pest, and I'm encouraged that we're going to be able to get a better handle on it over time. And I think we're going to learn a lot of cool things in the interim.
3: Well, thank you for for sharing with us. I mean, these beetles are are just interesting and tricky little buggers, but but I mean. it it is, it's good to learn about it as beekeepers and good to know what your options are. And at least to just have this, you know, mindset that, that you, you have to do something. I mean, there's, or you, you have to at least be aware of what to do when you, when you start encountering beetles. And so what you've shared with us today is, is going to be really helpful towards that end. So thank you for taking the time to do that. And I'm glad that I had an opportunity to, to sit down with you and interview for this, for this. Yeah,
0: thank, thanks, Cameron. I think it's kind of, you know, it's odd because as someone who's being interviewed, I think, gosh, with small eye beetles, there's so much more that we could cover. And I always tell the people I'm interviewing, hey, you know, we need to have you back on in the future because we there's a lot about this topic that we can talk about. And I really feel that way with small eye beetles. So thank you well, for being willing that. to interview. I appreciate it.
3: <laughs> we'll have you back on the podcast.
0: On the I, think, I think that would be a good idea, Cameron. Thank you so much. <laughs> but if you've been listening to this topic about small hive beetles, we're going to make sure and include a lot of links about small hive beetles, some of the information that we provided here at the University of Florida in our show notes. So make sure you look out there. And of course, I'll, I'll be happy to be Uh, a guest again on Two Bees in a Podcast to be able to talk a bit more about small high beetle biology, behavior, and control. So thank you guys for listening to this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast. And Cameron, thank you for being willing to interview me about small high beetles. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thanks, everyone. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chump.
2: Welcome back. It is at... Question and answer time, and we have had a ton of questions coming in, so I hope you all are patient. We have been, I mean, I think we have like 1,200 listeners a week, Jamie, so we've got a lot of questions coming in. Anyway, you ready for your questions?
0: I think I am, yep.
2: <laughs> okay, so the first question is from someone named Todd. He emailed us and asked when Queen Bees sleep or rest, or... If nurse bees sleep or rest, um, I guess you would kind of assume that foragers are active all day and then they sleep at night. But if you don't leave the hive and it's dark all the time, you know I would probably sleep all day if it was dark all the time. So how do they know the difference?
0: All right, these are all interesting questions. Uh, I've got pretty short answer. The the funny thing is is that most bees sleep or rest. I, I hate to use the word sleep, so I'm going to use the word rest. Most bees sleep most of the time. I used it again. Wait, sleep. I was you about to say, most are you going to use
2: rest or sleep? That's what happens. <laughs> I was asleep when you
0: asked me the question. So anyway, what well, so what I what I discovered, I, I I once wrote a column for the American Bee Journal where I talked a lot about honeybee biology. And one of the things that, that came up were the task of worker honeybees. And of course we all go through all the different things that worker honeybees do. You know, they they are born and they clean cells and they feed the babies and then they take care of the queen and as they age they graduate ultimately to foraging behavior and so we've got this saying busy as a bee you know we call them workers but if you look at the research worker bees spend the majority of their time doing nothing at all in fact if we called them what they did we would stop calling them workers and start calling them (laughs) resters and this is true across all three bee types queens drones and workers they need to rest they don't sleep as it were but there are certainly periods of inactivity where that where they do very little and in fact if you mark a bee and watch them in observation hive you'll see that they do that quite a lot of the time so it's it's there's no one time they all just stop moving But bees stop moving when they need to stop moving. They rest when they need to rest. And that's actually a good chunk of the time. So if the specific question is, when do queen bees or worker bees rest? The answer is a lot of the time. So the next time you're watching an observation hive, see how many times a queen just stops and her retinue of workers will start licking her and taking care of her. She's essentially doing nothing. She's Mm -hmm. resting during that time. Mark a few random workers in your observation hive and see how a good chunk of the time uh, any given marked workers just standing there. Yeah, there's lots of time where they're working, but but there's a lot of time where they're doing nothing. And so they rest periodically throughout the day and throughout the night when they when they quote need it and they do more of it in the evening. You you do mention that there that the colonies that sorry the the hive nest is is dark, but in reality there's a lot of light that comes into that entrance, there's this activity associated with uh, the sun being up, the foragers are foraging. So there are lots of ways that bees can know that it's daytime without necessarily having to see light. But regardless of that, they rest a lot throughout the day as well.
2: Interesting. So all the workers are getting all the recognition, just like people.
0: That's right. Well, it was the, thing, the thing is, the way that I teach this, Amy, the way <laughs> that I teach this is if you watch an observation hive, your eyes gravitate towards the bees that are moving, moving. Mm -hmm. not the bees that are standing Mm -hmm. still. And if you watch closely, most of the bees are just standing still. So try that the next time you pull a frame out of your hive or you watch an observation hive, you'll see it's happening.
2: Cool. All right. So the second question—it's a little bit long. Uh, we received an email, but I do want to read the whole thing just so that you know you have a little bit of background of what this person's asking. So um, Tony was asking when it comes to seasonal temperature differences impacting bee colonies progressing through the fall to the winter to the spring, um, we're a little confused about understanding the differences in brood rearing, especially the development of winter bees. So summer bees, you know, are they live approximately forty-two days. Winter bees are said to live for much longer. To support the colony without new brood development Um, this person lives in south georgia so you know we may have winter temperatures that support brood development but are there winter bees quote-unquote winter bees in the south and then what makes a winter bee develop differently in both uh, versus the south
0: yeah this is a series of comments questions it's really difficult to give good answers to but they're great questions because you know, you know, I, I get the benefit of traveling a lot and seeing what other bee scientists are saying at meetings, speaking to beekeeper clubs, myself, et cetera. And when when I do all of that, I have I have noticed in the past ten years an explosion of people talking about winter bees. Something I had never heard of when I was a brand new beekeeper. Heck, for the first 20 years of keeping bees, I never heard of it. I knew I knew that there were bees that could live six months during winter, but I, and I knew there were bees that pretty much, you know, in spring and summer, worked themselves to death in six weeks. But I never thought about the interface, the transition between those two bees. So Tony's asking really good questions. You know, we, we live even further south than Tony does. University of Florida is in Gainesville. We're further south than him. But we still get winter temperatures and we still have winter bees. So, so what, is, what does all this mean? Well, the research suggests that the bees that carry the colony through winter are physiologically different than those that carry colonies through spring and summer. And it's, and it's a little bit more than the bees in spring and summer just work themselves to death. That certainly has something to do with it where the bees, you know, literally just activity themselves to death. They, mm-hmm. they just move so much through foraging and other things that they that they just die. Whereas in winter, they have a lot uh, fewer activities in which they have to engage themselves and so so they can live longer. But there's more to it. Than that the winter bees are fatter have more fat bodies a lot more energy stores in this case there's just a lot of physiological differences so there's a lot of research at the moment and i would argue almost exploding uh, research at the moment where people are trying to understand what causes a colony to transition from the production of you know standard ordinary foragers who just do their sorry workers who do their thing in spring and summer to those worker bees that are longer lived who have slightly different behaviors and that carry the colony through winter. So we Mm -hmm. don't know the answer to a lot of these questions. People are beginning to outline some of the physiological differences. I I pointed out one, you know, fat bodies as an example, but, but there's a, you know, how does that happen? Aren't they all fed the same food? Mm -hmm. What initiates this trigger? You know, Tony mentioned that, you know, he lives in South Georgia. Well, that's the three hours drive straight North for us here where we live in Florida, and we live a five hours drive straight north of people who live in Miami. So sure. what what triggers the differences in these these bees? What triggers the production of these bees? And Tony, we just don't know. We, we, we know it has to do with cooler temp- temperature, shortening day length. We know it has to do um, with, it, you, you mentioned specifically about brood production shutting down. We know it has to do with triggering of um, uh, uh, different resource availability. You know, we have pollen nearly year-round, so we're able to produce brood nearly year-round. But in northern parts of the U.S. And, and in the world, or extreme southern parts in the southern hemisphere, when, when resources are less available, bees won't produce brood during winter. And people are trying to model this out right now because they're trying to answer the very questions to Tony, that you're asking. So I hate to leave you hanging and say we just don't know a lot about it. But what I will tell you is just watch over the next five to 10 years about how all of this research on this topic is going to lead to a lot of the answers and help us understand this better. The reason this is important is because uh, there's, there, there tend to be high winter losses for a lot of commercial beekeepers, and they want to know what they can do to ensure the production of quality winter bees when they would ordinarily need to be produced, July, August, September, so that their colonies have a high likelihood of surviving winter. So this is important and people are beginning to look at it. So I'm excited to see where this goes.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So the third question is from dave and he listened to your podcast on nosema i want to say that was last week's episode so it was in fact yep yeah wondering if there's a direct feed microbial biotic that's been studied to see if it may help control nosema
0: dave there's a lot of people who are producing probiotics or, or what i would call feed stimulants at least that's what they call it. and they're sure. and they're making claims that these are good for the gut microbiota of bees but i would argue that the jury's still out there's not a lot of data to support these claims at mm-hmm. the moment So why does this matter in the first place? Well, you know, we all know that humans, you know, we humans have things in our guts that help us digest food. In fact, Amy, I don't know if you know this, but we actually have more foreign cells in our bodies than we do human cells in our bodies. A lot of the bacteria, Ew, and other microbes. So yeah, no, <laughs> you know, basically our human cells, our human bodies are just—it's uh, just a big, huge ecosystem for trash. all the other things that, that everything <laughs> lives in. And likewise, honeybees have important uh, bacteria and, and, and fungi and other things that live in their gut that are important for honeybee survival. So just like I mentioned, this, this concept of winter bees is, is really starting to gain a lot of traction mm-hmm. and people are researching it a lot. This concept of having good microbiota is beginning to change a lot of, uh, of thought processes for commercial beekeepers who are now recognizing that it's important that our honeybees are not just healthy without, but that they're also healthy within. So Dave, to your specific question, I'm not aware of any products that have actually been tested at the university or, or, you know, USDA or federal lab level, looking at how some of these things are beneficial to honeybees, even though I know that there's a lot of companies that are claiming that their products are. With that mm-hmm. said, I do anticipate uh, a, a huge surge in literature on this very topic in the coming months and years, just because it's something people are, are focusing on at the moment. So, you know, there's some anecdotal reports on some of these products, but what I would just say is, you know, use some of these products, experiment with them, but don't necessarily put all of your your eggs in the one basket until we know more about these things
2: hmm It seems like there's a lot of research that, you know, could potentially be done. So I think that's pretty exciting.
0: Oh my goodness, Amy. You're, you're two of the three questions that you asked about. You know, you asked <laughs> about sleep and rest. You asked about winter bees and you asked about the microbial, about probiotics. The, the, the winter bee one and the probiotic one are things that students galore, postdocs galore are starting to look at. And I really expect a tidal wave of information coming out on these topics over the next five to 10 years because... They have direct management implications. Mm-hmm. So I think it mm-hmm. I think supporting this research is important. Beekeepers attend your state, national, and international meetings so you can hear the cutting edge answers to these questions that you're posing.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Everyone, thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Lauren Goldstein, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible.
0: For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratories website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions? You won't answer it on air. If so, email them to honeybee at ifis.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.